0: Welcome everybody to Summer School, a space for the woke, witty, and sometimes ratchet educator, for our educator allies who just want to get it right. For those who want the real inside scoop of the day-to-day joys and woes of working with black and brown children, families, and communities. For those who know black and brown educators are needed, multidimensional, and sometimes <laughs> just petty as hell. <laughs> i was in my second year in administration and first year as a principal i had this amazing opportunity to apply to an organization whose goal is to bring together black and brown educational leaders together not just to learn the hard skills needed to function at the executive level and navigate complex systems but also joining a vast network of mission-driven leaders of color together to understand and support each other's needs i was so ecstatic about my application one part of the application is getting approval from your supervisor allowing you to participate because there were times you needed to be away from your school or from work. Because I knew I was gonna apply when the application opened up, I asked my supervisor two months in advance and I got the green light. Fast forward to application time. I submitted the paperwork to my supervisor and just needed him to sign off. Mind you, he is a white male and my direct supervisor is a white female. He called me into his office and said, you know, I know that I originally agreed, but on second thought, I think your focus should just be on the school and everything you need to learn can be from her. At that moment, I knew I needed to be very direct and clear. And I told him straight up, I am a black woman. You are a white male. She is a white woman. The level of training and support you can provide can only go so far. And I am in dire need of the guidance and support of this organization to help me be a better leader of color here in your organization. That's when he set up in his seat and replied that he was not going to sign the paper. And if I still applied, there were gonna be consequences to my actions. I was crushed. There were already so many micro and macro aggressions that happened to really make me their black puppet. I walked away, cried, and knew in my soul that I could no longer serve there. After a few months of enduring unnecessary hardships because I was a young black leader, I submitted my letter of resignation. As a leader, you never want to create a sense of abandonment to your team or students. But just because I was there physically doesn't mean I was present mentally or emotionally. So I was still abandoning them. My peace and joy was robbed every day. I was doing a disservice to everyone around me. However, I decided to stay in the fight just uh, in a different network, in a different state, and in a different time zone. <laughs> I'm still working on speaking up for myself and what's best for students, especially in a time where we don't got time to waste. This is America. It's time for professional development. Here we'll connect with a guest or I'll explore a topic that's meant to challenge our thoughts and sometimes just say the things we've all been thinking. This doctor holds an EDD in educational leadership from the University of Southern California. She has worked in teaching, advising, and curriculum design roles in higher education. Her experience includes working in the Middle East as a part of a very aggressive reform initiative. The goal was to implement 21st century standards in a dual language system while simultaneously becoming a global economic player. She has a sincere passion and skill in working in areas that are often challenging for others and believes that educators have a duty to empower and enhance the lives of students. Welcome, Kelly Jackson.
1: Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being on today. Really appreciate it. Um, And I know today we're focusing on something that's very timely and relevant to today's climate. And we're going to be digging a little bit into the global impact of George Floyd's death and the many deaths we just occurred that have occurred over these past couple of weeks. And before we get into all that, I just want to check in on you and see how are you doing, your family? You know, I know you're married to a Black man. You have a Black daughter. You have deep love and care for Black people, attended an HBCU. What have conversations just looked like recently for you and in your household?
1: I think right now the overall feeling is just a sense of worry. Um, my husband and I talk a lot about, you know, maybe how we're feeling throughout the day and what is that, what is the world going to look like for our daughter, you know, Um I never really thought the things that my grandmother had to deal with um, would also be a lot of the same recurring issues that we are now dealing with. And, you know, sort of navigating the space that we're in. How do we be proactive change agents and also be cautious at the same time? Mm -hmm. So it's a very difficult space to be in. um, And I think, um, as are most people, we're just trying to do the best that we can.
0: Yeah. So I know we're talking about like the global impact of everything that's happening. Um, We sometimes have a very narrow view of just like the United States and how things impact us here. And you've had the opportunity to do research that goes beyond those borders. So just if you can, tell us just a little bit about your research studies. Yeah,
1: Um, well, my research um, really looked at global citizenship education. I looked at specifically girls and women, um, and the impact of issues of um, societal inequities and social justice. And I, I really looked at that lens because I taught for three years in the UAE. Um, the, the people that I taught were specifically girls and women. I taught in an undergraduate program. So um, educating women has always been a big passion of mine. And when I was there, I realized that the results of colonialism go far beyond um, just our own walls within the United States. And a lot of the things that these women were experiencing, whether it be um, sort of race issues there in their own home country, were a lot of the things that we also experienced in the United States. And there is no curriculum, to my knowledge, that was out there to sort of address those Mm. issues in a way that we could reflect and sort of um, talk um, in a way that's very inclusive and educating at the same time. So I developed a curriculum that was sort of all-encompassing. It could possibly be for undergraduate students or maybe high school students and repurpose for that population as well.
0: That's awesome. It's, It's amazing how sometimes when we just take the moment to step back, and get out of our bubble sometimes, how we connect deeply with others and you know, even through the systemic inequities through that lens and how that bond or that creates a bond that we wouldn't have thought of before. So uh, thank you for your experience and just your studies and bringing these, these things to light. And thinking about that, I, I would like to hear your opinion on how do you foresee the impact of George Floyd's death on, on education in general and, and higher education as well?
1: You know, I feel like right now we've built such a momentum in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I see so many, I'd say young people, even though I'm also included in that group, just being very proactive I think as educators um, in education systems, if we don't do anything, then we'll be at fault. So there is no way um, a school or a university could not respond to the things that are happening right now. Um, I anticipate that as school starts in the fall, that people will be revising their curriculum They'll revise the way they address issues of race in the classroom. It's going to change the narrative completely. It's going to change how we talk to our students, how we interact with our students mm-hmm. uh, how administrators address the school population. everything that we've talked about before is now coming to the forefront
0: yeah it's it's so interesting that you say that that it it takes. <laughs> the sacrifice of lives in order for this type of change to happen as if we haven't been sitting in university classrooms for decades now and still having to experience, uh, you know, implicit bias of our professors or the not seeing anybody that looks like me in my classroom. And now that several people have died and this is a worldwide you know, microscope being put on this issue. Now we're starting to get the change. And it's unfortunate, but I think some positive things are going to come out of it. But I also think that we're still going to have a lot of professors and higher ed administrators that are going to be struggling with this idea of Black Lives Matter.
1: Yeah, I think that it's going to shed light on the people that feel uncomfortable with these issues, too. Um, It's certainly going to force universities to um, look at professional development, how we have these conversations, and the onus, too, is going to be on our students, because in higher education, students are very proactive, and they'll advocate for what they want.
0: So Mm -hmm. if
1: there's ever a professor in a classroom, students will notice immediately that they don't feel comfortable having that conversation, and they'll choose to say, um, excuse me, can we go back and have that conversation again? Um, Can we address the elephant in the room? And now Mm. the table will be flipped. Yep. I'm really interested to see what happens. And I'd like to see, I'd like for this to be a springboard for more things to come, positive outcome. Mm.
0: How can education administrators create or open up opportunities to facilitate the very necessary conversations that have to be had um, about this, the global issue, but really about small issues that may be happening on campus or micro or macro aggressions, just the things that may be happening, you know, in offices and classrooms. How can we start to make this, you know, quote unquote, difficult conversation, something that's more, more normal in, in, Higher education.
1: You know, part of it, I have so many answers for that question, but the first is creating a safe space, right? Creating a space where students feel like they're they're recognized and that their opinions are valued, but also having people in positions of power that look like them. And all too many times we have administrators. I think we talked about this on another podcast where. You know, you have people that look like us that are in the front lines, your advisors maybe that look just like you, but then the higher up you go in in administration, you have less women, um, less women of color, men of color, and that perpetuates this political system, um, this racial system where again, um, we're on the front lines, but we can't necessarily um, have the autonomy to make the decisions that would impact our students directly.
0: Yeah, and where do we talk about that? Who do we go to with this issue? Like, who brings this up? Because sometimes I might be that one professor in my department, and I'm now feeling this burden of, I need to speak up, or, you know, is it the students? It's like, we know it needs to be said and something has to be done. But sometimes folks are tired, tired of, of
1: uh, yeah. it. No, I understand it. And, and that's why I think, too, allyship is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been so proud of my white friends, my white colleagues that have said, what is it that you need right now? Hey, they're posting list- listings of books. Uh, listings of black businesses to support places that I didn't even know about, but they're educating me and they're educating themselves. And and again, allyship is so important because mm-hmm. now you know white people are speaking up and they're holding their friends accountable and sort of bringing these issues to the table. And I think that is really going to make such a change because before we were always the ones saying. Hey, um, look, did you check out this book or maybe you didn't want to ruffle anyone's feathers before. So you were afraid to stay because perhaps you were going to lose your job. Yeah. Um, now other people are, are really doing that for us. And I appreciate that so, so much.
0: Yeah. I, I remember five years ago, maybe now it was Freddie, Freddie Gray's death. And I was living in, in Boston at the time in grad school and that's where this idea of um, being an ally was first introduced to me. And at first, I was like, "What? What is this? Like, what? What does this look like? Who? Who's supposed to be teaching y'all, educating y'all? What? You know, somebody needs to help me understand this idea. And it's so funny that I I took this idea of of being an ally, you know." like mm, what is this really to this idea somebody brought up this idea of being an accomplice and it's like you i appreciate you being an ally but i want you to be my accomplice too so that if i go down you going down with me like you you ready uh-huh. to really take the, that stance with me and i and think how
1: far are they invested
0: how far are you truly invested and w- i think i'm i'm starting to see that idea of being an accomplice a little bit more now people are challenging their parents people yeah. are you know, getting arrested side by side with us. And it's encouraging to see that. And I, I pray that this is this is something that catalyzes a whole lot of significant change for us. And I know this, my next question is kind of like a big question, but we got to start the conversation somewhere. What can schools do to help students take a stand against Racism and inequity in our society and i and I'm thinking that question from like a k plus stance when you're dealing with so many competing priorities and knowing that this is truly a priority how do we how do we help to navigate our systems and our schools to be able to to stand up in in that way and really prepare students to have a voice in this too well,
1: one I do my own reflection and you know I like to think what is what's the root of this um the police brutality where does that come from and to me it's a value issue right um that there is not enough value placed on the lives of black people black men in particular and where does that start from and so I started to read a lot especially you know as you mentioned before I have a young daughter and. One of the first times people know the skin color is when students or or kids are like five or six years old. So that's first grade. Mm -hmm. So, what are we teaching students in first grade? Some of the foundational principles about value. Um, And why would you not value someone that looks different from you? And the more I thought about it, I don't ever remember talking about race in my classroom at that age um and perhaps we just aren't having those conversations we're being very dismissive about it and we're not acknowledging that these things exist and there are ways that are developmentally appropriate to have conversations Mm -hmm. with students or with kids at that age I think simply by doing that earlier on We can acknowledge that we have a problem. We can acknowledge ways of processing it and allowing kids to kind of start talking through it Mm -hmm. very early on.
0: I remember my first encounter with dealing with race or feeling like an outsider. And I was in preschool and my mom had me in like this private school few towns away and it was predominantly white and Latinx people there. And every day we would have our little playtime and we could play in a little like fake houses that they have. Mm-hmm. So we would play um like the big bad wolf every day. So all the kids will run inside the house and I had to run around the house every day and be the big bad wolf. So one day I was like Damn, I'm tired of running around this house. I want to be the one to go inside the house. Like, I want to go in the house and, and scream. So I was like, I, I, and one day I was like, okay, I'm going to go inside. Somebody else to be the big bad wolf. They're like, no, you can. You're the only one that can be the big bad wolf because you're black. So I, um, I went home and told my mama. And all I remember is her coming up to that school and me never going <laughs> back there again. Like I I can't I just remember her like literally like grabbing me and taking me out that school and me never having returned. And and in my household, it was it was the conversations about race were interesting because it's always them them white people, them white people, always trying to them white people. So that's kind of my, my scope of of race, but it wasn't more so like let's really break down this experience that you just had and let's talk about. You know what this means, and I doubt that that teacher in that classroom set that the rest of her class down and really had them understand or impact. You know why little Jasmine isn't here anymore,
1: right? Um, Or or address your feelings in that moment mm -hmm. either. As a child, you experienced something, and you had no idea what that was, but you you knew how it made you feel. Yeah, and knew that something was wrong. Yeah, I. so, I mean, that I'm sorry that that happened to you, you know. Yeah. Um, I've had experiences that are similar now as an adult, but because of my husband. And I'm, I'm a light-skinned mm. Black woman. And depending on where I am, people may identify me as Black or they may not know how to identify me, but they know that I'm not white. Um, and when I'm with him, it's very evident that I'm I'm Black. Um, and one time we were at a restaurant and um, we had a Karen experience. Uh. <laughs> um, but Karen was uncomfortable with my husband talking on the phone at the bar. And she felt like she was being threatened. I wasn't with him at the time. I was going to check on our table. We were having a drink, just waiting on our table. The restaurant mm-hmm. was really crowded. And I turned around to look for him and I could tell by the expression on his face that something happened. And it was, something came over me. It was just the the weirdest feeling ever. Um, And I I remember going up to him and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, you won't believe this woman wants to call the police because I'm making her uncomfortable. Wow. So things like that, (laughs) the fact that they happen when, you know, you were younger, the fact that they happen now as adults, it it perpetuates how important it is for us to continue having these conversations and continue to have it to where, you know, people that um, the Karens of the world or whomever, and I hate to continue to use that name, but they're going to get tired of it at some point, you know, and we are going to wear somebody down, yeah. but to keep the momentum continue to have the momentum you know and I mentioned about making changes on a very foundational level but I don't see enough professors on the news talking about these kind of issues Mm. I don't see enough professors you know really advocating for change whether or not it's having you know virtual town halls because we are in the midst of COVID um having virtual professional development seminars so people that are at home and they're teaching can learn how to process with their students I just I don't see enough of that and I think that that's eventually going to come
0: yeah Absolutely. yeah the time is going to come because it's at the forefront of everybody's mind and it, even if it's mm-hmm. it's not coming from the professors it's going to come from something the students oh yeah. yeah It's 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 going to come in one one way or, or another but it would be nice if it came from those who didn't look like us who were in those higher positions f- for that to be their stance. And I know it's so, so much politics and BS around how to address it, but it's just like address it like this is something that we're all figuring out. This is something that is significantly impacting a large population in our world. And it's like, you just got to address it. It's no more tiptoeing, walking on it. We can't do that anymore because it hasn't gotten us the change that we need to see and feel. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: I think it's easily um, addressed. And somebody maybe phrased this before, um, and and I'm paraphrasing, but sometimes diversity is like the curtains on the windows, right? Like they try to make it all pretty and maybe they'll add it in a mission statement mm -hmm. and say, We want students to be, you know, globally educated and um, we want to address issues of diversity and inequity and all of these things and they make it sound really nice until something happens and now you have no choice but to say exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And they hide it underneath statistics or maybe hiring a very nice consultant to come in and you know share what the climate of the school is and then that's it that's their way of addressing diversity but this has to be more than just one town hall you know Mm -hmm. it has to be more than a mission statement it has to be integrated into the curriculum and not an elective course
0: exactly like (laughs) a a, a lot of a lot of these trainings and professional development somebody mentioned this um in one of my uh, PDs the other day and they're like, is this going to be one of those ones where folks can opt out where it's like, we have an optional book reading, we have an optional <laughs> uh-huh. training. And it's like, this is this not the time for optional no more.
1: No, no. Mm-mm. If I were a higher ed administrator, if I had, a, you know, a provost position or something like that, I would probably do an assessment of the curriculum on a very macro and micro level. You know, what are the examples that we're bringing into the classroom and how does this speak to diversity? How does this speak to social justice? Because again, it's not just something that you learn in one course, right? We're not trying to like Black History Month, this whole thing, you know? Like you, you don't just celebrate that in the month of February. Like this is every single day. It should be embedded throughout every course. Yep. You know so that when students leave and they finish, you can truly say that they are invested in equality and access, and that they are going to have positions and be advocates and change agents for for others
0: yeah um we're we're actually in the midst of developing a uh I guess, an African-American achievement strategic plan right now. Oh. So we we were already in the midst of that as a network. And now this is just really, this really just sped up the process of what was already happening uh, behind closed doors. But you brought up that point of we need to take stock. Like we really need to assess like every layer of our institutions and say, is this oppressive? In what we're doing, or does this progress uh, different ideals and truly show value to diversity in our institutions? And that's from curriculum to hiring practices to the way in which we we discipline students to you know the way in which we engage our families or disengage our families. Like we truly have to take stock of of every single part of our system in order to to make the change we want to see. And it definitely starts with those higher ups, like being it being right in their face of an assessment of, wow, like we're a truly oppressive institution right now. Um, and then being able to take that and doing something with it. So that's, that's an excellent point for sure. So as we, um, As we kind of conclude this time, I I would love to hear from you and really this idea of this global impact and the stance that, that we're in right now. For any educator and those that really sit in positions of power and those who are people of color that are sitting in positions of power, what is it that you would advise them to do for self? And to do for institutions that they're leading in this movement in time right now.
1: Right now, I think it's important to reevaluate the lens that you teach with. Um, think about your um, pedagogical practices. What are you bringing into the room? Are you engaging in difficult conversations? Are you sort of um, straying away from maybe having those difficult conversations and share resources because there are tons of organizations that are out there to really help strengthen having these conversations in the classroom and making sure that you're bringing your colleagues along with you
0: on Mm -hmm. that journey. Mm -hmm. Yep. That makes, that makes total sense. And I I pray that our leaders our leaders of color who are really out here championing the change that we're taking care of self, but we're not stopping the fight too, right? So we, we have to find that good balance of um, checking in <clears throat> and being thoughtful about how, how we're feeling and how we're processing everything, but also understanding our scope or locus of control. Like what is it I can control and do to have a voice and to to shift the the change that's happening Kelly, thank you so much for for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and just overall uh, experience and thoughts around like this global impact of the movement that's happening right now.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me again. Of course. And I'm
0: going to keep having you on again and again and again. Thank you all for joining us on the Summer School Podcast. If something stood out to you in our conversation today, if there's a topic you would like for us to explore or hail, even if you are a woke, witty, or petty educator and want to be featured, drop us a line at info at the Change
1: gonna come. Oh, yes it will.